Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, July 27. Each Monday when I'm with you, I'm aware that we are another week into the coronavirus pandemic. And as the days continue, which have been approximately 140 days that have passed so far, we are learning new ways to adjust to what is being called the new normal. I remember my first Mindfulness Monday talking about the stages of emotions we were feeling and how fear, anxiety, and even depression were at the top of the emotional scale. By now, maybe those emotions or states of mind aren't overwhelming for some people, but for many others, they feel just as fearful, anxious, or even depressed as they did when the pandemic first hit. And they don't know how to overcome the deep discomfort or even suffering their feelings are causing them and worry that they are only gonna get worse, perhaps even debilitating. Well, what if I were to tell you that you can actually unlearn anxiety and depression by becoming your own self-coach? Which brings me to my special guest today, Dr. Joseph Luciani. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Joe Luciani has been practicing clinical psychologist for more than 40 years. He's the internationally best-selling author of the self-coaching series of books now published in 10 languages. His latest book is Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. He appears frequently on national TV, radio, and online, and has been featured in numerous national media sites. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, Joe. So happy to have you. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It really is. Oh, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I really enjoyed your book. I just savored it. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to take a deep dive into it with you today. So. I want to start by saying that your book felt very resonant and familiar to me in many ways. I've been a life coach for over 10 years and have recently become a thought coach. You're a psychologist, but linked coach to your professional title, which I thought was very interesting. And your book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, is all about coaching yourself through the very things that afflicts us, like anxiety and depression. I have to say, for someone like myself, who went through many years of Jungian analysis, to overcome my own pain and suffering, I commend you for writing a book, a fantastic book, I should say, that can help millions of people not have to, not have to spend an inordinate amount of time digging up their past, or getting stuck in the whys of their family dysfunction or traumas. Please tell our listeners why you felt that was a natural progression for you from practicing talk therapy, if you will. Well, I also uh, spent 10 years in Jungian analysis, so we are uh, both familiar with the collective unconscious. Uh, I, yeah. I started out traditionally, 
And uh, I found that I, I just absolutely absorbed it like a sponge. I loved it. It was so exciting and just, just so, especially all the dream work and everything. That's when I started uh, my private practice. Uh, it was stimulating to my clients as well. We had a good time. We, we loved exploring these wonderful symbols of transformation. But people weren't getting better, at least not on my clock. Uh, I, I'm an impatient person by nature. And also struggling with my own anxieties, uh, I was not really finished with my own work, and I was impatient with that. So I started to realize that I had to, I had to start to go down a new path, one that was more satisfying for me, one that was more direct, and one that solved problems. And uh, really the catalyst, I was starting to move in that direction when a cousin of mine called who was in great distress, he was uh, taking five medications, his anxiety was so high. So I said, you know, I can't treat you as a patient, but you know, I can help you out, let's talk. With him, I was able to take the gloves off. I was able to be really me. I wasn't the sit back, lay back analyst, just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And from that moment, I realized being me and being direct and going after the things that made sense to me just was a much more natural and, if you will, synchronistic place for me to be. So that's ultimately how I got off the traditional path. And I allowed myself to express myself uh, that comes from, uh, you know, your own experience, it comes from your, your training, it comes from your education, but basically it's a matter of going to what works for each of us. Absolutely. No, I found that very interesting because I don't think that is really, you know, in the mainstream milieu of therapy, if you will, even though a lot of therapists may adopt, an, you know, certain modalities into their work, you know, I think the the model of Freudian or Jungian analysis is one of a very long time. And, you know, in as much as I benefited greatly from that analysis, I might add, I too know that I wanted to write my book because I want, I didn't want people to have to suffer as long as they did. That there were not, not about the quick fix, but there's ways in which, and your book certainly covers that so magnificently in ways that you can address the issues that are pressing in present time. Do you know, without having to take that voyage back into the past? Well, I always, I always say, and I truly believe that the best psychology is not rocket science. Uh, the best psychology has to make common sense. It has to appeal, make common sense. And a person has to leave the office not saying, well, boy, he or she is going to cure me. A person has to leave the office saying, now, what should I do to apply these methods? So I think, I think it's very important to realize that all modalities point towards the same hub, which is healing, but some get there much quicker than others. And uh, especially nowadays, people are impatient. We don't find the same. When I started, my first analysis was with a Freudian. And uh, at the time, that was the gold standard. And this is before graduate school. And I was dealing with those anxieties. And you expected to be in analysis. You didn't expect to finish in three months, four months, five months. So things have changed. People have changed. Insurance companies have changed. We are impatient with not feeling better. And I'm impatient with not feeling better for anyone that is suffering. So that's why, you know, the self-help modality of getting to people, getting to many people all over the world, but with a format that they can follow and implement, that, that's really been my quest for a long time. 
I think uh, that's so important and, and very timely. You know, I really do. You say in your book that self-coaching in plain everyday language offers a framework to help you understand how insecurity inadvertently becomes the underlying motor that drives a life of control, desperately trying to overcome feelings of vulnerability. But rather than overcoming vulnerability and making us feel more secure, insecurity-driven thinking only leads to anxiety and depression's further loss of control. Talk to us, Joe, more about our feelings of insecurity and the need to feel so in control. You say we weren't born insecure and need to call out insecurity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fundamentally the core of, of my book and my work. Um, everyone has insecurity. I, my contention is you'll never meet someone who is without insecurity. And why is that? Because no one has perfect parents. No one grows up in a world where there isn't loss, insecurities of uh, getting ill, sickness, separations. So we all face insecurity, which slash should be insecurity, vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Human beings hate loss of control. It's in our DNA. We wouldn't be here today if we were complacent about being in control. So when we feel insecure, which is the core element now in my theory, when we feel insecure, we compensate that insecure vulnerability feeling by trying to control life, which is a natural outcome. Um, however, where we go astray is when there is an excessive amount of insecurity or insecurity that's constantly reinforced, we tend to over control life. And we do that with what I call controlling strategies, uh, avoidance, uh, anger, hostility, but the most pre pre prevalent is worry. Worry kind of just cuts across almost every other form of control. We worry because we're trying to anticipate life before it happens. We worry because we want to be braced. We want to be safe. So you see that insecurity promotes a desire for control that desire leads to over-controlling life, and over-controlling life is not a natural phenomenon. It requires effort, cognition, it requires an adherence to figuring out how to stay safe. So we stress ourselves, and it's the stress, ultimately, that depletes our chemistry, leading to anxiety or depression. Absolutely. I mean, what you find, and you know, I too, at, at a point in my life, dealt with anxiety, and that's what took me on a psycho-spiritual tra trajectory to understand what was the underlying cause of that anxiety. But the, the whole notion of control and the needing to control, you know, my husband has a saying that's rather simplistic but effective, focus on the things that you can control and don't worry about the things you can't control or did I say that right, that you, you know, focus on what you can control. There is so much we can't control that's out of our control theoretically. And I find that the more we try to micromanage everything and the more we're hyper vigilant about staying in control, that it starts to feel like there's more that we can't control. Yeah. So it's such a dichotomy to be caught in because I think it exacerbates yeah. what you're talking about, that type of insecurity and vulnerability. Absolutely. You know, something about relinquishing that control is rather freeing. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, worry begets worry. And you know, the thing is, you're absolutely right. Uh, once, once we start down that slippery slope, uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to heal ourselves by worrying more. So you see, it's just, it's just almost the, the hamster wheel, if you will. Um, it, it, is, it is critical to understand that you know, basically there's, there's good control 
and there's bad control, if you will. Good control is fastening our seatbelt, taking vitamins. You know, that's proportionate reality-based control. Disproportionate control is to worry about things in the future that may or may not happen. Mark Twain said, I've worried about many things in my life, most of which have never happened. And that's, <laughs> that's exactly what we do. It's the what ifing. What if, what if, what if? That is based on self-distrust. You see, self-distrust is the inability to trust ourselves enough to let life unfold because we compensate for our feelings of insecurity and vulnerability. We don't trust our ability. And yet, you know, we're survival machines. If we could just let go of that overlay of insecurity and neurotic thinking, we would be just fine. How many problems have you solved in your life? I ask every client I see, 100, 1,000, 20,000. What makes you think you won't handle that next problem when it comes along? And yet insecurity says, yes, but that next problem. It's so funny because you have something in my in your book. Um, I have the yeah buts, and I think you have the, is it the if buts? Yes, buts. <laughs> yes. That, I was like, I felt such a kindred simpatico. I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. That, uh, um, the yeah buts, the, the, the perennial yeah buts excuses, do you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I'm a mindfulness practitioner, so I am really about helping people understand what it means to be in present moment awareness. And sounds easy, not so easy to do. And that research, you know, has shown us that the mind wanders almost 50% of the time. So it's either worrying about what might or could happen in the future, or it's lamenting the past and where we have the hardest time staying, you know, present is in the present moment, do you know? So we can make ourselves crazy worrying a bit needlessly about what might or could happen. And I feel that, that you know, having a mindfulness practice, if you will, really helps us be aware when we're about to either slip out of the moment and go into the past or go into the future. I find it to be very effective. And you talk about being in the present even in your book. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that, that we share in common. You ask in your book, can the brain really be retrained? And you say the answer is a resounding yes. You go on to say that for most of the 20th century, it was assumed that the brain was a static, unchanging organ whose capacity was determined by your genetic makeup. And illustrate the static brain mindset by sharing your own personal destructive mindset story around this. Please share it with our listeners. Well, when I, when I went to uh, high school, I, I realized that I, I had a real deficit in spelling. Um, and, and now I know that there is a, a legitimate neurological reason for that, but I interpreted that as my being not smart. In fact, I thought I was rather dumb. And I didn't bring home books. I didn't study much. Sports and girls were really what caught my attention, but it didn't matter because I wasn't going to be a student anyhow. Uh, fast forward a bit, my, my senior year, my mother, junior year, my mother and I went to the guidance counselor and she said to him, uh, my son wants to go to college. Can you make a recommendation? And he looked at her and then he looked at me and then back at her and he said, don't waste your money. Oh. <laughs> and 
And that's, so I went out and started loading trucks for a living. And uh, if it wasn't for track and pole vaulting, I wouldn't have gone to college. My friend just said, you know, why don't you give the coach a call? So, so I inadvertently wound up in college thinking, well, I don't know how far this is going to go because I can't handle college. But I, I kind of crept along and did some baby steps. And, and little by little, I noticed that um, I was actually doing better in classes from Fs to Ds to Cs to Bs and an occasional A. It didn't, it, it just, the only way I interpreted that was, well, that can't be because I'm, I'm rather dumb. So it has to be my tenacity that I'm just uh, really trying hard. And then it became easier and easier. Uh, I did become a very good student. Um, and the, the reason was because not only was I tenacious in applying myself, but I was actually changing the structure of my brain. Um, if you would have told me at 20 years old that I would write seven books, I would have absolutely felt you were high. I just wouldn't have believed it. I would not have believed it. I couldn't have believed it. Now my brain functions so much differently. Uh, I, if someone wants me, can you help me with this verse? Or my daughter's getting married, hopefully. It's been canceled twice for this virus. But she said, can you help me with this paragraph for the vows? Uh, well, I, I, I get right to the typewriter and just because now I've become that kind of mentality. My brain just loves to expand and think in words. And all of that tells me that the brain is pliable. That which did not work or did not work very well has become my asset rather than my liability. And there are many, many studies that show from imaging how the brain, the brain actually changes during our efforts to practice and do things differently. And why this is so important, and I tell people, when you have a thought, if you just consider that a mental ethereal thing, it's not the same than if you realize that thought is an electrical chemical event. And that is going to change a minute part of your brain. Now, the cumulative effect of negative thinking, of neurotic thinking, will start to change the structure. So thoughts are important. And I want everyone to know how important it is to change the nature and the frequency of those negative thoughts into positives. Thoughts matter. Absolutely. And you just went right into helping me go into my next question for you, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, and that's neuroplasticity, and how something you call healthy habit loops can form new neural pathways in the brain, which is part of the retraining you speak about. I love taking a deep dive into neuroplasticity. I mean, it's fascinating to know that our brains are changing throughout our life. Talk to, the, uh, to, talk to our listeners about that because it, there's so much. We could do an entire hour on just neuroplasticity and the changing of the brain and the malleability and the pliability and the chemicals in the brain. So, so talk to us about that, Joe. It's such a, such a juicy conversation to have. Let me start off with, with one of the studies that just always fascinated me. Uh, in London, you know those little black taxi cabs? That, and to get a, a black cab license, you have to learn something of 20,000 plus landmarks, streets, etc. It takes about two years to complete that study. Now, what they did is they took some images of, uh, I believe it was the hippocampus, the navigation center of the brain of these drivers prior to starting their career. And they also did the same for bus drivers. 
Now, after a two-year period, they got the, uh, the drivers, the ta taxi cab drivers, and took another image of the brain, and they realized that the hippocampus had grown significantly in the cab drivers, but not the bus drivers. The reason being is because that navigation center, the taxi cab drivers had to figure out what route to go, how to navigate, whereas the bus driver driving the same route didn't have to tax the brain, didn't have to force the brain to think in that way. So you see, uh, we, I always use the, uh, in the book, I talk about how it was in, the, in my area of New Jersey, the Lenny Lenape Indians used to have a footpath. And that footpath has become a road. And then later on, as the strawberry farmers came, it became a wagon road. And then as the settlers came in, it became a, a, a road road with paved uh, macadam and then a highway. So it's the same thing with the brain. Uh, if, if something is really reinforced, it forms from a path to a road to a superhighway, a neuronal highway. If we, re and this is where you get into the behavior operant conditioning. If you reinforce something, it'll grow, but it also grows anatomically in the brain. If you feed it, it'll grow. If you starve it, it'll, it'll go away. And this is the key, of course, to neurotic thinking. It's what we reinforce and what we starve. So that's the, the brain's plasticity will respond to the effort. And you know, one extra reason why it's so important to understand the plasticity of the brain is because a lot of people want results tomorrow, yesterday. Uh, and the reason that they need to be put down and calmed down a little bit is to understand that the brain doesn't change just because you want it to change. There are no words and no guru and no person that's gonna make things go away. You have to practice practice, practice. So in my book, I try very hard, and that's the coaching aspect, to get someone to realize if you want to play the piano or play Mozart, you can't do it in one, one lesson. People don't understand that about psychology. They want the magical, aha, so that's why I'm suffering. It's not that easy. Once you have a format, then you need to practice it. And if you can be motivated to practice that just as you would an instrument, you will absolutely get the results you seek. Absolutely. And that's why, to your point, thoughts matter. Because, you know, by changing our thoughts, and that's the basis of my work, transforming negative and fear-based thoughts to useful thoughts, the thoughts that work for us constructively and productively, and they serve our well-being, that fires the neurons in the brain. You know, negative thoughts versus positive thoughts, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yes, thoughts matter tremendously in the way in which we start to create healthy habits of thinking. And as you say, by creating those healthy habits of thinking, we are creating new neural pathways. And I feel that suddenly we start to experience that our mind doesn't default to old ways of thinking, but instead starts to default to new ways of thinking, which again is, I think, because of the plasticity of the brain. And it's quite exciting, I think, to know that the brain is capable of that. I mean, it's fascinating. And something that is ongoing throughout our lifetime. Yeah, it's, it's the nature of habits. Our brain, we are creatures of habit. I mean, if or otherwise, you'd have to learn to relearn to tie your shoe in the morning or button your shirt or blouse. So habits make us efficient. And efficiency, again, is one of our survival strategies that have kept us on this planet. So we are creatures of habit. And the brain is just set up to form habits. What you put into your brain will become hab habit habituated if you reinforce it. That's just what the brain does. It's like a sponge. 
So we, we've developed these habit loops and habit loops once reinforced will go on and on and on unless we neutralize them by replacing them with more adaptive habit loops uh, and, you know, or just, just really turn away and stop feeding these. This is the nature of my book, of course, is to help differentiate how you go about uh, kind of neutralizing the negative and increasing the positive. Absolutely. And having awareness and awareness yeah. of both. I talked in the beginning about how so many people are being seriously affected by the coronavirus, not just physically, but mentally, and how millions of people are literally feeling sapped by depression or just pleaded by chronic anxiety, as you mentioned in your book, but not necessarily connecting it to the virus, mm -hmm. the pandemic. I mean, even without a pandemic, we know people can feel this way, but now it's really gotten much worse. You say in your book that feelings aren't necessarily facts. Talk to our listeners about how they can dig deep within themselves to overcome their feelings of depression or anxiety, you know, not, not a quick fix manner, gradually, because they have so much fear about the virus or the future. How can they become what you call a therapist coach at such a challenging time? Yes. Uh, you know, earlier in your introduction, you called it the new normal. I, I usually call it the new abnormal. <laughs> we are going to be different. Um, one of the things, it, it is important for people to understand that there, there are two kinds of um, anxiety, if you will, um, circumstantial uh, and neurotic. Circumstantial anxiety is based on factual reality. This virus is a factual reality. Neurotic anxiety is based on futuristic possibilities, the what ifs. So the first thing I would tell, tell your audience is that there is a certain degree of anxiety, worry, that we will have to consider you know, under these circumstances normal. So it's not abnormal for you to be concerned, to have some worry thoughts, uh, but, and here's the important factor, uh, is it proportionate to what's going on? Or is it disproportionate where you're seeing viruses on every surface, every person where you're staying up at night, wringing your hands, only thinking of this virus, sheltering yourself from people and places in such a way that you're actually reducing your ability to function. So control is important, but sometimes anxiety and worry are just part of our makeup to protect ourselves. If it weren't for some healthy anxiety, worry, concern, maybe we would be too complacent. So that, you know, there's that side of it. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure if I answered your question. Well, yeah, you did, I mean, because you, you really go into depth in the book about explaining the different types of anxieties and the different states of minds. And you do that throughout the book, but I'm thinking that, you know, we're living, you know, you call it the new abnormal. I say the new normal meaning, obviously that's what it's called, but I also feel we have to define what the new normal means to us personally. Yes. This is not a natural way to live. We're in a heightened state of worry and you know it's it's uh, talk about you know needing to feel in control i i feel that as much as we can be mindful about all the things that we have to be aware of because we're dealing with something that is unprecedented we also have to know when to be able to turn it off what i mean by that is not to be any less mindful but if we're spending all day and night which many people are in this heightened state of worry you know, it's just going to escalate. 
and people are going to suffer more. So, so maybe you can help us, Joe, understand ways in which we can maybe calm it down, to, to turn, turn the volume a little bit lower, if you will, ways in which you can, you know, bring yourself into the awareness that this is happening, but that you don't have to be hypervigilant or neurotic, if you will, about like, oh my God, I didn't, you know, I didn't uh, clean the UPS box and, you know, I didn't wash my hands up to my elbows. I mean, one could drive themselves crazy because oh. we've got so much of this going on. Oh, absolutely. You know, I call it, uh, what I'm saying, uh, I call it uh, COVID fatigue. And I think it's very important to realize we've, we've gone a long distance uh, since March. And uh, at first there was a lot of enthusiasm for protecting and doing what's necessary. But as time goes on, maintaining that level of enthusiasm as opposed to, I sh maybe I should call it more optimism versus pessimism, because now it's harder to stay optimistic and believe, hey, I'm going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Uh, this is the chronic uh, fatigue of COVID. And I think it becomes increasingly more of a challenge. So I think it's necessary that we, we are at this point in our fatigue, a little bit more conscious of those things that are restorative, those things that make a difference. Uh, and, you know, socializing is very important. If, if you are isolated and, and you can use the internet or make phone calls, that needs to become a steady diet. Uh, socialization is something that really keeps us grounded, especially during times of duress. Um, and, and also to realize that, as I always try to point out in the book, that you know, thoughts, there's either a conscious mind, an active conscious mind, or a passive conscious mind. With active mind, we're behind the wheel. We steer our thoughts. We pull them away from the insecurity, from the what ifs, from the worrying. We pull ourselves back. With passive mind, we're in the back seat. And these fears that percolate up from the less than conscious source of our, our psyche have its way with us. And we're just sitting there reflexively, like a knee jerk reflex, just going with those worries and feeding them and just going into that, uh, that hamster wheel of, of anticipatory thinking. So it's important to, to really start developing active mind, which goes very closely or to your contention of being present. And active mind, in order to be present, you have to be present. You have to take an active role in being present, whether it's meditative or just concentrating on what's in front of you, your environment, bringing yourself out of the past and the future. I think it was Eckhart Tolle that said, you, you can't, you can't have anxiety if you're at present. It just can't because anxiety has to do with things that haven't happened yet. Right, you're accepting, so, the, you're accepting the moment that you are in with acceptance and not judgment. You know, it's something that you elect to do. Mm -hmm. You might be aware of what's going on around you, but you are choosing in this moment to be present with acceptance, no matter what's going on. Do you know that it is a training? It is a mental discipline, as you know. Do you know, I found myself, I mean, I, I think about it almost a little humorously with the onset of the virus. You know, I was talking to a group of people and that for many people, they felt this sort of apathy or ennui. And, you know, uh, a couple shared with me that they weren't feeling sexual. They didn't want to be intimate. And I, and I said, don't let the coronavirus into your bedroom. 
you know, lock the door, <laughs> you know, beware of what you bring into the bedroom with you. We can have boundaries with this, sure. you know, we really can. So there's ways in which we can work through this and navigate this mm -hmm. difficult time so that it's not just overwhelming us and dominating our thoughts 24 seven. Yeah. Talk to yeah. us uh, about what you call, go ahead. I just, just wanted to mention the one thing um, I take from my friends at AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and you could put a secular spin on this, but it's so it's such a wonderful phrase, let go, let God. Like I said, you can put a secular spin on that, the universe, whatever you want to call it, but let go of that which constrains us and let life unfold. You see, that's realizing that in the let go, let God scenario, what you're doing is you're abdicating fate to fate. You, you are not trying to control fate. So with this virus, there's only so much you can do. And that's proportionate and it's healthy and let's all do that. But beyond that, that's where you get in trouble. That's where you get into the neurotic part of this when you try to control that which is beyond your control. And that's what worry is. That's what anxiety is. Right. We're trying to control what's coming around the corner before it comes around that corner. Exactly. And you know what I'm hearing more of Joe from people and friends that in the beginning this this uh, invisible beast you know this this virus was such a phantom if you will that people imagine the worst about it and now I'm hearing more people say look you know if I get it I get it and hopefully I'll get through it you know there's there's more of a resigning to the fact that you can't you can only do what you can do to protect yourself but in the event you know that you did get it there's more of a of a, a belief a, a, an optimism if you will and a trust that you will get through it so that's that positive thinking sure. that you start to put into effect yeah i know I, I know working with um, especially parents of teenagers i'm working with this one woman whose uh, children are going off to college and it's very very difficult for her as you can imagine I have, I have one of those. Okay. I have two of those, actually, that are in college, yes. So you know, uh, what I tell her is that you can only provide the concrete base for them to leave home with. Uh, and you have to be clear with them. You have to make sure that you've done everything you can to educate them and to give them the tools that you feel they need. But once they go out that door, that's the let go, let God. That's where your mind has to realize that now it is out of your control. Uh, we don't like to be out of control, but you know what? Uh, the more you allow yourself to not get into a pessimistic reaction to that, the more you can deal with it. Absolutely. I mean, I actually got a nice compliment from one of my sons. He said, you were much more worried in the beginning and you're <laughs> less worried now. It's not that I'm not worried, but right. I've obviously done what you're talking about. I've relinquished some of that control you know the need to know if everything's going to be all right how do i know that i i, I don't have a crystal ball i i don't know that so i loved him saying that to me because he actually noticed it i like your attitude and, and i might say that a pessimist has a negative attitude an optimist has an uh, optimistic attitude both exist in the future the optimist says oh it's going to be great we'll get through this the pessimist the opposite but, and it's so important to realize, it's okay to be in the future if you're an optimist because it affects the present. Mm -hmm. An optimist lives a very different life in the moment than a pessimist. 
So yeah, I, I, I always say in my book, you know, be present. But there are times where optimism, which is, yeah, it's going to be great. That, that futuristic optimism affects the present in a positive, it releases us from the, the, the shackles of pessimism. Absolutely. Talk to us about what you call mental mutiny and your theory of a stack of coins. I, I really like that analogy that you used. We are, we are creatures of habit and we are affected by all the things that impinge on us, all these numerous infinite variables that have come into our lives. So we are the end result of all of that, the aggregate of all of that. So let's say growing up, you have coins of uh, good things, bad things, getting in trouble at school, uh, grandma dying, all these, all these coins are different coins and they go in that, in that pile. And for, for all intent and purposes, most of the coins stack up fairly well. But, but every once in a while, we get involved in, in a very neurotic or traumatic situation that, that really has altering effects on our psyche. And that's a bent coin. Now, once you put a bent coin in that stack, what happens? Well, the rest of the stack begins to lean, 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 finally collapse. And that's where we have anxiety, the onset of anxiety or depression. So it's important not just to remove the bent coins, but, but really to, to start a new stack. I mean, we are in the moment, you and I and everyone else, we are a picture of that aggregate of all those things that have influenced us. So we could, we could just take that snapshot and say, okay, here's what we're playing with. Let's start to stack this now in a way that prevents any leaning. Uh, let's begin to reinforce the fact that we now shape our destiny. We're active mind, we're behind the wheel. We're not going to let the old reflexes of the bent coin mentality come in and sabotage our efforts. So, you know, I guess that's 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 kind of what I feel. I, I feel so strongly about the fact that we control our destiny. Our past does not control our destiny. We do. But you have to convince yourself. You have to, you know, 50, positive thinking, 50%. What's the other 50%? Positively believing. You've got to believe you can do this. And you need a format, of course. And with a proper format and with something of complete understanding, then the course is clear. You know what you need to do and you just need to keep doing it. Practice, practice, practice. Yes, that age-old saying, practice, practice, mm -hmm. practice, practice makes what? <laughs> More practice? <laughs> Higher levels. Yes, exactly. So let's go into the area of, which I thought was really interesting in your book, normal versus abnormal childhood and how anxiety and depression can come from either one. I think, you know, we, we just assume that if you've come from what is called or thought of as, as an abnormal childhood, that you're going to be more prone to things like anxiety and depression and whatnot. That's not necessarily true. There's other factors. Explain to our audience really how the, both of those things, like anxiety and depression, can come from whatever you perceive as a normal or an abnormal childhood. Yeah, it's, it's easy, it's easy to, to, to know when you've had a dysfunctional parent uh, maybe an alcoholic parent or a parent with uh, a mental illness or things like that. It's easy to, to say, well, you know, that, that certainly has been a shaping influence and, and I could see why I'm this way. But, but a lot of times I have clients that come in and they, they say, I don't understand it. I've had a perfectly normal, happy childhood. 
<clears throat> how can I be sitting here with all this anxiety and depression? I, I, I just had this wonderful growing up experience. And it may very well be, but you see, oftentimes we, we overlook the obvious and that's that, let's take, for example, uh, a controlling mom or dad, an over-controlling <laughs> mom or dad, a worrisome mom or dad. Now, don't do that. Don't pick that up. Oh, you might fall down. Wait a second. Let me put a coat on. Don't go out. It's too cold. Now, we might interpret that as, oh, boy, I'm so loved. Look at how mom or dad, are just they just want to take care of me and they don't want me to get hurt. So, so we can misinterpret our parents' neurotic tendencies as love or attempts to make us healthier. So there are, there are many influences, but if you wind up with anxiety and depression, you have to assume that insecurity has been part of your de developmental sequence. Now, it, it really, that's not such a terrible thing. I mean, it's not a perfect world, as I mentioned earlier, and no one has the perfect parents. So we grow up with some a kind of reflexive um, downside to our personality. Uh, what you need to realize is let's, let's understand it just from the moment. Let's understand it in the present. What are your tendencies now? Well, I worry a lot. I get anxious. I get depressed over blah, blah, blah. See the moment and realize these are the habits that need to be challenged, not why or where they come from. It's not, a, it's not relevant anymore. It's a, it's a cigarette smoker doesn't have to know why they took the first cigarette. Right. What are you going to do to break the habit? And that's, that's my whole contention. Absolutely. You know, again, that's that not needing, you know, for some, they take great, great comfort in wanting to go back into the past and figure out like, aha, that was the <laughs> moment when I had that impulse to do such and such, do you know, and wanting more of a way to connect the dots, if you will. I think there is a way to connect the dots cognitively or neuroscientifically, if you will, in the ways that you don't have to spend, again, such a long time going into the rabbit holes of the wise. Let's take a deeper dive um, into depression. You really break it down so well in your book and, and help, the, help the reader understand the causes, how to evaluate it, and whether or not medication is the route one should take depending on the seriousness or severity of their depression. Talk to us about the need for medication that so many people might feel they require to get through this time. I mean, with the opioid crisis and so much self-medicating, if you will, it's, it's actually really concerning. And what would you advise, Joe? What, what, what can you tell our listeners to, to maybe give them some advice about what might help them not maybe having to go the medication route that they so quickly think they need? Okay. Um, think of a bucket uh, with, uh, that holds our vital balancing chemicals, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin. And through stress, anxiety, over-controlling life, stress, we poke holes in the bottom of that bucket. So those balancing chemicals now begin to drip out. And the more holes you poke, the more uh, anxious you get, the more neurotic you get, the faster those chemicals drip out. So what happens is that you now are, are no, normal homeostatic balancing aspects of the brain can no longer take place. So what happens is now we develop an imbalance, chemically imbalanced. So anxiety and depression are in fact imbalances in our ability to stay uh, in a balanced state with our, with our neurochemistry. So with that imbalance, depending on the, the extent of that imbalance, medication works. Now, 
the more depressed or the more imbalanced you are, you know, the more there is a need. I call, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly uh, looking at medication as a therapy facilitator. And, and I think that most people need to realize that there is a place for medication, especially with the more severe anxiety or depression. But in most cases, by getting at the motor, which is the insecurity, by stopping that runaway train of just trying to compensate and just driving all that stressful, over-controlling reaction, by, by getting ourselves into a place where we're beginning to slow down that motor of insecurity, we begin to gradually plug up some of those holes. So our chemistry can naturally begin to rebalance itself. And over time, the more efficient and effective you are at plugging up those holes, you can either minimize medication or absolutely eliminate it. But you're not gonna do that if the motor of insecurity is continuing to poke holes in that bucket. You know, something like depression, I remember going to listen to a Jungian lecture and the speaker mentioned the word melancholy. It sounds archaic, <laughs> the word <laughs> melancholy. I feel like depression is one day gonna be like, what's, what's depression? What is, what is that? And that the understanding, especially now during this time, you know, I, I, I say it's, it's okay to have a gray day. Not every day is sunny. There are different Crayola colors in the box. It's not, there's brown and black and gray. Now, for somebody that's really struggling, and obviously, again, with serious consideration of the degree of one's depression and anxiety, which you as a psychologist can assess that properly, I just, I'm, I'm very concerned about just the quick go-to, like, oh, I'm feeling really crummy today. I guess I need to be on medication. I mean, you know that yeah, yeah. better than I do, how it's become really out of control. It's very concerning. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, what, what happens with, let's take depression. Uh, we start, think of it as a circuit breaker, like the circuit breakers, the electric circuit breakers in your home. For someone that's depressed, they start to feel overwhelmed, overloaded, like the circuit breaker in the home. If you, if you have a circuit breaker, say that's 20 amps, and you start plugging in all these appliances and air conditioners, well, eventually what's going to happen is you're going to overload that circuit breaker, and it's going to flip, uh, and it's going to turn itself off. So what happens in your home when that circuit breaker turns itself off? Well, your home loses its functionality. Same thing happens with depression. That that internal circuit breaker has to switch off. Now, this is important because basically, and I know it sounds a little bit out there, but if you think about depression as the circuit breaker going off, it's almost as if depression is trying to save us from a more further meltdown by making us maybe withdraw, pulling into ourselves, you know, getting a little bit out of the life. So I'm not saying that depression is healthy, but I'm saying that maybe on a, on a much deeper level, it's a way of shutting down the system in order to protect ourselves from the overload. Anxiety is just the opposite. Anxiety tries to protect us by throwing in bigger circuit breakers, you know, 40 amps, 60 amps, rev it up, rev it up until that breaks down and then we have another dysfunctional home or life. So, uh, so it is important to realize that with, you know, I have the, the heretical view that anxiety and depression are not mental illnesses. They're habits of insecurity. And I treat them as habits. You know, if you treat uh, 
anxiety, depression as a mental illness. What's an illness? It's, it's something you get, something you catch, uh, like this virus, you know, so, so you're a victim and victims are helpless to, to a virus coming in or to one of these nefarious forces, we are victims. By calling it a habit, we know about habits. We, we, we learn habits, we break habits, we do it every day. When you treat anxiety and depression as a habit, a habit of insecurity, then the question is obvious. What am I doing that feeds my habit? What am I doing that starves it? It's as simple as that. That's why I say, said earlier, it, it's really not rocket science. You have to know a paradigm that works for you and it really does have to work when you apply it. So, you know, let's get away from the illness interpretation where we are helpless and put ourselves behind that wheel. Amen to that, really. What you're saying, I think, is quite profound. You know, I look back, you know, and I think to some of my existential crisis that I had or my what I consider the dark night of the soul. I'm grateful for them because I feel they help shape who I am today. Now, obviously, someone who's gripped in something that feels like they're not going to get out from under it, it could be extremely dark, extremely scary. And we know that some of the thoughts that one is gripped by during something like a dark night of a soul or the dark night of the soul or an existential crisis, that it's the thoughts that one tells themselves that can start the spiraling down uh, trajectory and suicide can be a result of that. So I think what you're saying is extremely profound and something that I think needs to be looked at a lot more closely. Do you know? Let's, because um, I see that the time is, <clears throat> excuse me, moving quickly as I thought it would, and I'm not even into the halfway point of the things I want to ask you. So let's talk a little bit about anticipation versus worrying. I have a chapter in my book, says who called the something to worry about thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, tell us how anticipation doesn't have to escalate into worry. Okay. Um, let's say I'm, I'm looking at the weather forecast and it says there's a Cat 5 hurricane <laughs> about to come through our area. Um, so a Cat 5 hurricane is certainly a circumstantial stressor. There's no question about that unless, unless you're high or something. So basically, I anticipate my needs. Do I have flashlight? Do I have water? Do I... This kind of anticipation is very productive, and it always has been in our species, evolutionary-wise. And uh, it's proportionate to the circumstance. So it's when it becomes disproportionate and leaves the present concerns into the future. Well, if, and if that limb falls on the house and the roof caves in, and, and if I'm under that roof, so you see what we do is we extrapolate with insecurity and we project insecurity forward into that anticipation. So with anticipation that is proportionate and relevant to the circumstance, it is protective with when, when we project insecurity into the picture, then what was relevant becomes disproportionate, irrelevant, and neurotic. Mm, okay. I really liked your explanation of what you call the child reflex. Talk mm -hmm. to us about what you call the child habit loop or simply the child reflex. We, our insecurity is laid down early in life. Uh, we're sponges as we grow up, our personality is formed, and those early influences are very significant. Now, as we discussed earlier, uh, those influences can be very traumatic. They can cause some bent coin experiences. 
We may develop certain strategies of over-controlling life at a very young age. Go to any nursery school and just look at how some kids are bullies, some are whiners, some are criers. You know, we develop these strategies to protect ourselves. Okay, so we have these strategies of control or over-control that we bring with us through life. So now the next time, and I say this to all my clients, the next time you find yourself worrying about something, take a look at the quality of what's going on in your mind, the quality of the emotion. And what you'll invariably hear is, oh, I can't stand, it's too hot. I said, what does that sound like to you? Well, it sounds like the child, because this reflex was laid down when you were a child. See, these things are embedded again in that plastic brain. They stay with you. And when you get into the neurotic aspect that mirrors or reflects those old neuronal kind of associations, you act like that child. So I call it the child reflex. It's like a knee jerk. We don't create it or intend it or cognitively decide to be that way. It's just what happens when we get into an insecure spot. We start the child reflex. And that's one way to get in touch with, of course, when you're leaving that present and you're getting more involved in a retrospective reaction to life. You go further into it by talking about brain training imprints and that it's important to understand how the past is permanently encoded in our brain. Talk just a little bit about that. There, there was a study in Canada, probably the 60s, I can't remember the date, by a man named Penfield, Dr. Penfield. And they were doing a surgery on the brain with local anesthetic. There's no nerves in the brain, so the patient was lucid and awake. And they touched a, a point in the brain, and the, the patient had a hallucination, both visual, auditory, uh, smells, sounds of something that happened many, many, many years ago. It was like so vivid, the person relived it. And they went on with the surgery, came back to that same spot and hit the spot again. The same memory, the same experience, boom, there it was. So what, what we, we learned from studies like this and experiences like this is that the brain does encode all of that past and it is very much part of who we are and it can be accessed under certain circumstances. However, uh, what we want to do now in the present is to not let that unconscious or reflexive past influence and overrun our present life. That's why active mind versus passive mind. The passive content, the child reflexes will percolate up and, and dominate if we sit passively because they're very strong, they've been laid down, they're reflexive, they've been reinforced for many years. So that's why passive mind makes you more susceptible to the, in, the negative neurotic influences of the past. Mm -hmm. Interesting, I mean, I think the whole child, I, I really I really appreciated the letter that you wrote, was this to this a woman, I think her name was Martha? Oh, right, right, right. Which was right. so great, I think that's the whole therapy in itself. <laughs> Or even using that that whiny little child voice, where somebody can really be, you know, mirrored a, beha a behavior that we can get, you know, get into that loop around. You know, it kind of puts it in perspective. Oh my goodness, the time is flying by. You talk about the danger of identifying with insecurity and say that once you realize that insecurity is the thread that weaves through all our struggles. We begin to see that thoughts driven by insecurity serve only one master, and it's not you. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, insecurity is, uh, I, I used the term beast before, I guess I would say it's a beast. It's something that, uh, I don't know why it is, and it's, I know it's a metaphorical, but insecurity doesn't want to die. It doesn't want to die. It doesn't want us to kill it. It resists every attempt we make. Why am I worrying? Stop worrying. Stop it. Uh, so, so we have to realize we're up against a formidable foe. That insecurity does not want to die. Now, it's like any habit, so I'm not saying it's alive, but it's like any habit. Uh, a cigarette smoker doesn't want to have to stop smoking. You know? So all these things are, are part of what we're up against. Uh, I don't know if we're going to talk at all about mind talk, and I don't know if that's something you wanted to do. But uh, I, I mean, I can because I see we have literally four minutes left, and I can jump into that because you know um without giving the secret sauce away i mean i want to really pull the reader into like getting sure. to the mind talk which is the piece de resistance it's where you really start to implement the you know change thinking and break the old patterns of thinking so i, I do have the question and that is okay. that you do lead the reader into what you call the four steps of mind talk and say that it would be great if you practiced it every day. And I highly recommend that our listeners, you know, go out and get your book, which here it is, I have. And say that it would be great if you practiced it every day. You ask the reader if they are ready to take the leap without giving the steps away again, because I, you know, I, we don't have time and I think mm -hmm. it's, it's something to savor for the reader to get the book. What can you tell our listeners about why changing our mind talk is so important for growing things like optimism and clarity and by developing our self-discipline muscle? It will increase confidence and motivation to counter insecurity and live life more in the present. Leave us, Joe, with some wisdom pearls about that. Well. A life of duress is a life of self-distrust. Developing trust is self-trust is to me a muscle. If you learn to develop that self-trust muscle, then you don't have to anticipate what's coming around because you know in your heart of hearts, hey, I'm a survival machine, I'll handle it. Once you have the confidence of self-trust, you don't have to know what's coming around the corner. You just have to know that whatever comes around that corner, I'll handle it. And I think that's that's really what I would like to leave people with is that if you are living in a self-distrust world, you have anxiety, you have depression. If you'll take the time to exercise that self-trust muscle, you will come to realize that you not only can handle what life is going to bring to you, but you will have the solace and understanding that you don't have to know what it is before it happens. Mm, wonderful. So. I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an such an illuminating conversation. And I want to, you know, show you people out there that are listening again, do yourself a favor, pick up Dr. Joe Luciani's book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. Thank you, everyone. And thank you again, Joe, for, for joining me today. But thank you for joining us for this very illuminating conversation. And again, do yourself a favor and uh, pick up the book. It is, it's, it's just chock full of so many incredible tools and tips uh, to really navigate the, the water, especially during this time that we're in right now. For more on Joe, please go to selfcoaching.net. Is there another way that they could reach you, Joe, or is that the best way? That's the best way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. And from my heart to yours, until we meet again, stay safe, stay kind, stay present. Thank you again, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you.